The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand." And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with the crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to a children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Also, if you're taking the communion class, you can go at this time as well. new here. My name is Jared. I'm also on staff at Restoration Southside, and we're so delighted that you're here with us this morning. We've been working through Mark, and we've come to the time when now Jesus is turned over to the chief priests and the Romans. I've been almost physically ill studying this passage of how dark it is. So I ask that you would join me in prayer this morning and ask God to bless our study of his word. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? 
I cannot imagine what it was like for you that night. I can't imagine what it's like to plead by the Father to let the cup pass and to hear silence. Would you send us your spirit this morning? We're desperate for you. We're so tired of us and our sin patterns and our habits and our shames. We're so tired of us We're so tired of feeling messed up. We're so tired of feeling alone. We know that you know what it's like to feel abandoned. We ask that you would pour out your spirit in this room. That those who have never come to faith would come to faith this morning. That those who have gone cold or wandered off would find home again with you. I can't do this. Your spirit can, and so we plead the spirit. Rush into this room. Let us stand in awe of the majesty of our Savior and King. Would you bless us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was texting Sammy the sermon title, it occurred to me that most of you probably don't even know the sermons have titles. And that's totally okay. I have never once saw a sermon title and said, I am absolutely listening to that sermon because of its title. Nor have I ever seen a sermon title and said, I am absolutely never listening to that because of that sermon title. It's just sort of a way to put a bow on something that you finished. They appear in our app in our order of worship. But when I texted Sammy the sermon title, I texted... The most important concept for today, what's in the cup? We're going to talk about this seemingly archaic phrase that Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, and we're going to, we're going to ask ourselves, what's in the cup? And as I texted her that, what's in the cup, it, it pricked my mind to a serial killer movie from 20 years ago. I don't know where they come from. It just did. What's in the box? Remember Brad Pitt? Morgan Freeman? Movie called Seven. And they're hunting a serial killer who's doing this destructive and horrifying masterpiece, he calls it, where he's going to kill seven people who commit the seven deadly sins and he's going to kill them with the instrument of that particular sin. Throughout the movie, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are hunting this man, trying to put to stop these serial deaths. And finally, in the closing moments of the movie, Pitt and Morgan Freeman and the serial killer are out in the desert. And they're trying to discern from him, what is this last piece of the puzzle? What, what's, what's next? They have him in custody, so they think they've won. And the serial killer had prearranged for FedEx to go out and meet them in the desert and deliver to them a box. Do you remember it? And Pitt starts to panic. He starts to be horrified. And he keeps saying, what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? You see, the serial killer has had his way and sent Pitt's 
lovely wife's head to him in the last scene of the movie. And as he cries out, what's in the box? It's washing over to him. What's in the box is full of horror for him. And the reason that my broken mind led to there is because it's so important for us to ask the question, what's in the cup? Why? Why is Jesus our King and our Savior, Jesus our hero, our God, our our friend of sinners, why is He overwhelmed to the point of death? What's in this cup that He has to drink? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll walk through each character in the passage, but let's first start with Jesus And let's look about how horrified he is. Look with me in verses 32 and following. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him and he said Abba Father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will what, not what I will but what you will and he came and found them sleeping we don't often get a picture of Jesus' internal world most of the time we see him teaching or we see him do miraculous things but this gives us a picture of his horrified internal world And the irony is he's in the Garden of Olives, Gethsemane. What it means is the pressing. It's because in this Garden of Olives, there would have been a huge olive press, this huge thing that would grind down olives until there were nothing, just pulp left over. But out of the crushing, out of the pressing of the olives would come the sweet olive oil. And now he will be pressed in the garden. He will be crushed in the garden. We see his emotional response. He's terrified. We're so used to reading this and racing through it to the cross that we miss this piece. He's terrified, surprised. Terrified, surprised, or sore amazed. This is what the King James Version says. This is from Luke 2. Remember when they see all of the angels as far as the eye can see? They were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, we don't hear that enough, lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were sore afraid. Sore afraid. And then in Mark, here the King James Version says, and he taketh with him Peter and James and John and he began to be sore amazed. Sore amazed to be very heavy and saith to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. This version just cleans it up too much. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It sounds like he's had a bad day. Greatly distressed and troubled. My soul is sorrowful even to death. He thinks the stress on his life, what he knows is about to happen, is actually going to crush him. It's going to kill him. He's trembling in horror. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 5.7, the author of Hebrews, commenting back on this moment. 
During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. We get this, we get this sense that, this formal sense that Jesus knows all this is going to happen and none of it bothers him, and so he's kind of putting on a play for the disciples. And then he walks into the garden with 11 of them, and then he takes three a little further, and then he walks forward and he says, Lord, please let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, what you will. And then he goes back to the disciples, and they're, they're sleeping, and he's like, hey, fellas, wake up. Would you sit here and pray with me? And then he comes back over and says, oh, Lord, our Lord, would you please let this cup pass from me? No. He's terrified. He's horrified. He's begging God. This week, Sammy, she sent me the scene of the, what's called the Miracle Maker. The Miracle Maker is a claymation movie about Jesus. This is what Sammy does with her free time. Watch his death. A claymation movie about Jesus. And I'm like, come on. And she shows me the scene where Jesus has to go into the garden and talk with his father. And it's, they get it right. It's Jesus crying out and he says, Father, 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 let there be some other way. Let there be, let there be some other way. And then he sees the cup in the claymation. He sees the cup and it has a crown of thorns around this cup that he has to drink. And he says, no, no, take this cup away. Take this away. Take it away, Father. Father, Father, dear, listen to me. If there's another way out, a way out. And then the devil appears in the claymation. And he's whispering to Jesus, go, run, run. There's still time. Run for it. And you see the, the bushes open. The devil is cleared away for Jesus to march out of the garden and not continue in his father will. And then it shows Jesus, horrified as he is, he says, no, no, not my will. It's not my will. It's your will. It's your will. Father, your will be done. Your will, Father, your will be done. He's, he's terrified. He's horrified. And do you know why he's horrified? Because he's peering into the cup. What's in the cup? What's in the cup? He's peering into the cup, and what he sees is horrifying. He walks, and then he stumbles, and then he falls on his knees, and he falls on his face and says, Father... Well, let's look with me into the cup. What's in the cup? Why so much angst? Why so much horror from Jesus? There's two things in the cup. First of all, sin, the nastiness of sin. One who has never sinned, who has always done right, who is always holy and just and good and loving, and he has to drink down the sin of God's people. He has to drink sin, and then he's never been a part of sin. Sin of slavery and racism and genocide and theft and murder and adultery and lust and greed and covetousness and lying and adultery, idolatry, child pornography and assault and abuse and self-sufficiency and pride and never resting and never honoring those in authority and not bearing name in a way consistent with God. Again and again, he has to drink the sin, the sin that he never committed. And it's not just the general sins of the world. How about just the sin in the Bible? Jesus peers into the cup and he sees Adam's sin of negligence. 
and he sees Noah's sin of drunkenness. And he sees Abraham's sin of adultery and cowardice twice. And he sees Jacob's sin of being shady and lying. And he sees Judah's sin of disobedience. And he sees Moses' short temper and glory hungry. And he sees Job's self-righteousness. And he sees Gideon's lack of faith and Samson's insatiable appetites. And he sees David's adultery and murder. And he sees Solomon's sinful sex life. And he sees Jonah's judgmental attitude and Elijah's self-pity. He sees all, he peers into the cup and he sees all of the sin of all of the ones who have gone before him. And not just that, he peers in the cup and he sees your sin too. Can you see it in there? Can you peer into the cup and look down at what you've done that put him in this position? Your self-loathing and my self-aggrandizing porn and drunkenness and body-hating and addictions and our love to be numb and our hate-filled words to our spouse and the way we've snapped at the children that God has given us and the way that we gossip, we love to tear each other down and the way you disobey your parents and make fun of other kids at school and cheat on your homework. Can you see your sin in the cup? Do you dare peer in to your moments of infidelity? To your hate, to your pride. Do you see your sin in the cup? You can peer into it, but you cannot drink it. He already drained it for you. Well, he looks into the cup. What's in the cup? He sees sin, your sin and my sin. And more than that, he sees the wrath of God that's coming to punish sin. You see, he knows that if he doesn't drink that cup down to the dregs, there will be God's wrath left for you and for me. And so what is so horrifying to him, what is so troubling to him, is that as he sees all of the sin, he knows he's going to take all of the wrath. Because if he doesn't drink all the wrath, he doesn't take all of the punishment, there'll be sin, there'll be punishment left over for you and for me. And so not only does he see his sin, your sin, sorry, he sees your sin in the cup, he sees the Father's wrath in the cup. This is Isaiah 51. Kent Hughes pointed me to these three verses. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs. Listen, the goblet that makes people stagger. In Isaiah, he's talking about the cup of the wrath, meaning when God rightly pours out justice on someone, it's used the cup, the cup of suffering, the cup of wrath, the goblet that makes people stagger. And at the end here, he says this in 22. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. You see, you walk around thinking God's angry at you in your sin, that God has wrath for you in your sin, but what you don't understand is that Jesus has drunk the cup down to its dregs, that there's no more wrath left for you. It's inconsistent to think that Jesus died for you and took the Father's wrath, and that he's still passive-aggressive towards you. Kent Hughes said this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then listen to this. This is from Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus goes and he's horrified in that night and he's pleading with God in that night because he sees all of your sin and my sin and the sin of the Bible, the heroes of the Bible. And he sees all of this wrath that he's going to have to deal with so that there will be no wrath left over for you and for me. One commentator says it this way, until this moment he had been in control, planning and directing and teaching and guiding. He has always been ready with a word or an action. Now he is, as we say, falling apart and warning them that they're going to collapse around him. It's heartbreaking. He goes and pleads with the Father three times let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And God says no. God knows that there'll be wrath left over for you and for me unless his son bears the weight of divine justice in this moment. His son who never did anything wrong gets treated like the sinner so that we who did much wrong get treated like the saint. And he's so troubled in it. Luke says that he's sweating blood. One commentator says this, three times Jesus will place himself in the hands and the will of his Abba. Three times Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, will deny that he even knows him. You see how sad it is? He's just fed them dinner. He's just washed their feet. And he knows that the one is already gone to betray him. The 11 are going to fall asleep. And his three best friends, they're going to fall asleep too. And then they're going to disappear into the dark, and he goes anyway. He humbly submits to the Father. He knows despair. Christian, if you have felt alone, if you have felt overlooked, if you have felt marginalized, if you have felt assaulted or abused, if you have felt alone in your despair, Jesus knows despair. You're not alone. In fact, he goes it alone so that you won't have to. So first we see the horror of Jesus' emotional experience at being abandoned by the Father, being abandoned by his friends. But we also see Jesus submit gloriously to the Father. There's a scene in the Passion of the Christ where Jesus is lamenting in the garden and begging his Father. He's begging his Father that the cup might pass from him. And as he's there begging his father that the cup might pass from him, the devil shows up in the movie. And the devil lets a snake slither out from under his robes and it's making its way towards Jesus as Jesus is pleading with God and pleading with God. And after Jesus pours out his, his, his lament before God, his plead with God, he accepts, humbly submit, submits to his father and stands resolved to deal with with the devil. And just as he stands up, he steps on the snake. He crushes its head. It's this picture of what was promised way back when it, Jesus would be taken down, but he would crush the snake. I just want you to see the majesty of the story. Remember the last time the father was in the garden? Do you see it? You see how the scripture is tying itself together? The last time the father was featured in a garden? He was, he was promising a weepy Adam and Eve that their failure wasn't the end of the story. 
He was promising that though they've been hit by Satan's temptation, his son will come and strike back. His son would defeat the snake. Adam is in the garden. Adam, who's doing what he wants, is saying, not your will, God, but my will. Not your will, God, but what I want. And he plunges us into death. And God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. But now here they are. Here we are again in a garden and the father's here. And this is not the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. And the second Adam says, not my will, but yours be done. And the father this time, he's not there to provide comfort and blessing to sinners. He's not there promising a redeemer. He's not there promising a future. This father is looking at his son Jesus and promising condemnation, curse, and abandonment. Promising that his son will die alone. No friends, no father, no father's smile. In fact, he will have to deal with the father's scowl. God says to the second Adam, Jesus, obey me about the tree and you will die. And Jesus goes along with it. Jesus goes for it anyway. Adam disobeys and God comes to comfort him in the garden. Jesus obeys and the Father comes to abandon him in the garden. Why? For you. Jesus obeys and the Father walks out of him. He literally turns his countenance from him. Why? Why? It's horrifying enough that he who knew no sin would become sin but that he has to face the Father's wrath. The Father turns his smile off of Jesus and turns his scowl towards Jesus. Derek Thomas gave me this idea. Each night I bless my kids. There's lots of benedictions in the Bible, but I tend to use the same one every time with my kids. It's just my favorite. I use it with y'all a lot too. I say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you peace. But friends, that's not what Jesus heard. That is not what Jesus heard. The Lord curse you and abandon you, Jesus. The Lord turn, make his face turn away for you and turn his wrath towards you. The Lord turn his scowl upon you and give you despair. That's what he took. And he goes through with it anyway. And he goes through with it anyway. He's horrified at what's in the cup and he's humble and submits to his father. And then he's just hurt in the garden. You heard him say it several times. Are you still sleeping? Could you not watch with me this one hour? The picture is that, Luke gives us the picture that he's a stone's throw away. Meaning they can see him. And he has stumbled his way away from them and fallen onto his knees. And then the scriptures lead us to see that he's fallen on his face and he's wailing. You heard it through many cries and tears. He's wailing at the Father. And he turns back around to get some comfort from the, the only things he has left. And they're asleep on him. They're asleep. These ones who wanted to pick out their spot in heaven. These ones who argue about who is the greatest in heaven. The ones who, remember, just hours earlier, they will have said, even if I have to die, I will not abandon you. 
And each one of them said the same. And he's in his darkest hour. A stone's throw away from him. And they are asleep. And then you see Judas in the dark, away from the crowds, through firelight of the candles and the torches. It says he comes and he kisses Jesus. The word there is to kiss long or kiss affectionately. Matthew 26 says, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And this mob, they arrest him. Him who's never done anything wrong his whole life. And they arrest him in the dark. And his friends all abandon him. Did you see it? Do you dare to peer into the cup? See your sin in the cup? See my sin in the cup? Listen to this. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What is with the streaker at the end of the text? This tense text, and it ends with a streaker. At least 11 commentaries say that the streaker is John Mark, the author of the book, the author of the story. The sense is is that the Last Supper would have been had at John Mark's family's home. And then John Mark sees them all head to the garden and giddy that he gets to be a part of Jesus' band, follows them, and since he was at home and suspected to go to bed, was just in his jammies, and then grabs something and threw it on so he could be out in the garden with Jesus, and he ends up naked. I think it's supposed to remind us of another person in the garden who was naked. Adam and Eve, after their sin, after their failures, They notice that they're naked for the first time ever. And you remember what God does? God come and clothes them in their shame. Takes away their indignity and clothes them. But not Jesus. He'll die naked and alone. Why? He sees the horror of the cup taking on your sin and my sin. He sees the wrath that will pour it out on him. And though he's terrified, he goes through with it anyway. He humbles himself and submits to the Father, even though he's hurt and abandoned by all of his friends. Why? Why would he do it? Andrew Peterson, who writes music and books, wrote a chapter called The God in the Garden. Peterson was wrestling with despair and loneliness in a season where he said God would not answer his prayers, that his God was silent to him. 
And Peterson goes away to a retreat center. And there, in the retreat center, they have this garden. And the garden is of statues. And the statues are of this story. That you can walk up to and see that the eleven are laid out on the ground asleep. And you can walk a little further through the bushes. And you can see, excuse me, the three laid there. And you can walk a little further and you see Jesus prostrate out on the ground, a stone statue. And Peterson describes his experience seeing it. He says, dead in the center, frozen in the gray light, was the statue of a man in a state of desperation. This was no classical, pietistic display of a barely human Christ. No, this was different. He looked to have stumbled to his knees. His back was arched, his head thrown back, his hands covered so his face, so that his elbows were splayed out and his friends were asleep. And all the dormant trees were sleeping too. Not even his own creation kept watch with him that morning as he knelt in the terrible silence of that lonesome forest. And Peterson recalls his own finding of the statues and he says, Then I fell to my knees and I wept, wanting strangely to comfort him, to tell him he wasn't alone, that I had walked through a freezing wilderness to be with him, that I would keep watch, dear master. And with a gust, the knowledge swept into me that I knew my Savior better in the silence than I had ever known in the song. Ah, Lord, how precious is your weeping presence with those who weep. How much better is your companionship in the deep darkness than your absence in the light. He says, I was not alone. I've never been alone. My own descent into the dark woods of desolation was merely a footpath to the heart of Christ. Christ who went alone to the grove to pray. Christ who asked his friends to keep watch with him. Christ who in his anguish turned his face not away from the Father but to him who aimed his questions at the silent dome of heaven and got an angry mob for an answer. Do you see your sin in the cup? What's in the cup? What's in the cup? I'm a father. And you guys know I use lots of illustrations about my son Knox. And someday he is going to visit that upon me. But as a dad, as a dad, what do I make of the fact if I saw Knox in pain, if I saw Knox alone and in despair, and Knox was saying to me, Daddy, don't you leave me. Daddy, please, please, there's got to be another way. Daddy, don't you leave me. Don't do it. Don't do it, Dad. You know For me to turn my face away from him, whatever it is, this thing over here would have to mean so much to me. You'd never turn your face on your son, turn your face away from your son, unless what it was getting you meant so much to you. Don't you see when we walk around with our heads aimed at our shoes, feeling shame all the time, maybe he loves me, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he loves me, maybe he doesn't. It overlooks the fact that he turned his eyes away from his son to give you his smile. You would not turn your eyes away from your son unless it was getting you something that you wanted more. That your son would go and rescue these people. That he would teach them to love. He would teach them to be a new kind of people. That they would go and gather up all the people they could. And then we would spend the rest of forever celebrating the son. Look at what the son has done. He will say, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, friends, is he forsook him for you. Bask in that love. 
peer down into the cup because now the cup is empty for you because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. How hard it must have been to deny your son's request to let the cup pass, to do it another way. But you denied his request so that you would give us his seat at your table. Jesus, we thank you that you stood alone in the dark. Your friends having betrayed you and denied you, and abandoned you, and you stood alone in the dark so that we would never know darkness. You gave us your seat at the table. I pray, God, that you would free us to live like that. Free us to live like God is fond of us. Otherwise, he'd never give up his own son. That he wants us, that he's made us his own, that there's time now for us to go and tell everyone about a father like this, Jesus, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you administer grace through these hearts. Let hearts that have never come to faith come to faith in you now. Let hearts that need to be warmed with the realities of the gospel be warmed now. thank you. Oh God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We thank you. Oh God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.